Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 28 The cemetery was a short drive out of town on a large plot shaded by towering gum trees. On the way, Falk passed the fire warning sign, the danger now elevated to extreme. Outside, the wind was up. The burial itself had been a private one, so he hadn't been to the Hadler's graves, but they were easy to find. Brand new, the polished headstones looked like indoor furniture accidentally left outside among their weather-beaten neighbours. The graves were ankle-deep in a sea of cellophane, stuffed toys and withered flowers. Even from several feet away, the pungent smell of floral decay was overpowering. Karen's and Billy's graves were piled high, while the offerings under Luke's headstone were sparse. Falk wondered if it would be Jerry and Barb's responsibility to clear the graves when the gifts crossed the line from tribute to trash. Barb had had enough trouble in the farmhouse, let alone on her knees with a bin bag, wretchedly sifting through the withered bouquets and trying to decide what to keep and what to throw away. No way. Falk made a mental note to check. He sat for a while on the dry ground by the graves, ignoring the dust that coated his suit trousers. He ran a hand over the engraving on Luke's headstone, trying to shake the unreal sensation that had nagged him since the funeral. Luke Hadler is in that coffin he repeated in his head. Luke Hadler is in this ground. Where was Luke the afternoon Ellie died? The question resurfaced like a stain. Falk should have pressed him when he had the chance, but he'd truly believed Luke's deception had been for Falk's own benefit. If he'd known what was going to happen, he'd cut the thought dead. It was a cry that had come from too many lips since he'd returned to Kiwara. If I'd known, I would have done things differently. It was too late for that now. Some things had to be lived with. Falk stood and turned his back on the Hadlers. He headed deeper into the cemetery until he found the row he was looking for. The headstones in this part of the lot had lost their shine years ago, but many were as familiar as old friends. He ran his hand over a few of them affectionately as he passed before stopping in front of one particular sun-bleached stone. There were no flowers on this grave, and it occurred to him for the first time that he should have brought some. That's what a good son would do, bring flowers for his mother. Instead he stooped, and with a tissue wiped her engraved name free from dust and dirt. He did the same with her date of death. He'd never needed a reminder of the anniversary. As far back as he could remember, he'd known that she'd died the day he was born. Complications and blood loss, 
his father had told him gruffly when he was old enough to ask, before looking at his son in a way that made Falk feel that he was almost, but not quite, worth it. As a kid he'd taken to cycling out to the cemetery alone, at first standing solemnly for hours in penance at his mother's grave. Eventually he realised nobody cared whether he stood there or not, and their relationship had thawed into something of a one-way friendship. He tried hard to feel some form of filial love, but even then it had seemed like an artificial emotion. He simply couldn't ignite it for a woman he'd never known. It made him feel guilty that, deep down, he felt more for Barb Hadler. But he'd liked visiting his mother, and she was a hell of a listener. He'd started bringing a snack, books, homework, and would loll about in the grass by the headstone and chatter in free-flowing monologue about his day and his life. Before fully realising it, Falk found himself doing that very thing now, stretching out his limbs and lying back in the stubby grass alongside the grave. The shade from the trees took the edge off the heat. He stared at the sky, and in a voice barely above a murmur, he told her all about the Hadlers and his homecoming, about seeing Gretchen again, about the heavy feeling in his chest when he'd seen Mandy in the park and Ian in the shop. He spoke about his fears that he might never find out the truth about Luke. After he'd run out of words, he closed his eyes and lay still beside his mother, cocooned by the warmth of the ground at his back and the air all around him. When Fork woke, the sun had moved in the sky. With a yawn, he stood up and stretched his stiff joints. He wasn't sure how long he'd been lying there. He shook himself off and set out through the cemetery towards the main gates. Halfway, he stopped. There was one more grave he needed to visit. It took him far longer to find this one. He had only seen it once, at the funeral, before he'd left Kiwara for good. Eventually, he stumbled across it almost by accident. A small stone huddled anonymously among a crowd of more ornate memorials. It was overgrown with yellow grass. A single bunch of dead stalks wrapped in tattered cellophane lay under the headstone. Fork took his tissue and reached out to wipe the grime from the engraved name. Eleanor Deacon. Don't touch, you mongrel! The voice came from behind and Fork jumped. He turned and saw Mal Deacon sitting deep in the shadows at the feet of a huge carved angel in the row behind. He had a beer bottle in his hand and his fleshy brown dog asleep at his feet. It woke and yawned, exposing a tongue the colour of raw meat, as Deacon hauled himself to his feet. He left the bottle at the foot of the angel. Get your hands off her before I cut him off! No need, Deacon, I'm leaving. Fork stepped away. Deacon squinted at him. You're the kid, aren't you? Eh? You're the Fork kid, not the dad. Fork looked at the old man's face. The jaw was set with aggression and the eyes seemed more lucid than they had the last time. Yeah, I'm the kid. Fork felt a pang of sadness as he spoke. He started walking. Right. Pissing off for good this time, I hope. Deacon moved after him, shaky on his feet. He pulled his dog's leash tight after him and the animal yelped. Not yet. Mind your pet. Fork didn't break stride. He could hear Deacon trying to follow. 
The footsteps were uneven and slow over the rough ground. Can't leave her in peace even now, eh? You might be the kid, but you're just like your dad. Disgusting. Fork turned. There were two distinct voices coming from the yard. One loud, one calmer. Twelve-year-old Aaron dumped his school bag on the kitchen table and went to the window. His father was standing with his arms crossed and a fed-up look on his face as Mal Deacon prodded a finger at him. Six of them missing, Deacon was saying. A couple of ewes, four lambs, few of those same ones you were looking over the other week. Eric Fawkes sighed. And I'm telling you, they're not here, mate. You want to waste your time walking over to check? You be my guest. So it's a coincidence, is it? More a sign of your shoddy fence line, I reckon. If I'd wanted your sheep, I would have bought them. Weren't up to scratch to my eye. Nothing wrong with them. More like why buy them when you could nick them from me, isn't that right? Deacon said, his voice rising. Wouldn't be the first time you've helped yourself to something of mine. Eric Fawkes stared at him for a moment, then shook his head in disbelief. Time for you to leave, Mal. He went to turn, but Deacon grabbed him roughly by the shoulder. She called from Sydney to say she's not coming back, you know. You happy now? Make you feel like a big man, does it, that you talked her into buggering off? I didn't talk your missus into anything, Eric said, shoving his hand away. I'd say you did a good enough job of that yourself with your boozing and your fists, mate. Only surprise is she stayed as long as she did. Oh, yeah, real knight in shining armour you are. Always here for a shoulder to cry and dripping poison in her ear. Talk her into leaving and talk her into bed while you're at it, eh? Eric Falk's eyebrows shot up. He laughed, a pure, genuine burst of amusement. Mal, <laughs> I didn't shag your missus if that's what you're worried about. Bullshit! No, mate, it's not bullshit at all, it's the truth. Okay, so she'd pop round for a cup of tea and a bit of a cry when she'd had enough. Needed a bit of time away from you. But that's it. She was nice enough, don't get me wrong, but she was nearly as mad on the booze as you. Maybe if you took better care of things, your sheep, your own wife, they wouldn't bloody wander off on you. Eric Fork shook his head. Honestly, I've no time for you or your missus. It's your daughter I feel sorry for. Mal Deacon's punch came like a dog out of a kennel and caught Eric in a lucky blow above his left eye. He staggered and fell backwards, his skull landing with a sharp crack against the ground. Aaron ran outside with a shout and bent over his father, who was staring at the sky with a dazed expression. Blood was trickling from a cut in his hairline. Aaron heard Deacon laughing, and he sprang towards the older man, ramming his chest. Deacon was forced to take a step backwards, but his large frame kept him grounded and steady on his feet. In an instant, Deacon reached out and grabbed Aaron's upper arm in an iron grip, pinching the skin as he twisted it and dragged Aaron's face close to his own. Listen here. When your old man gets up from the dirt, you tell him that'll seem like a pat on the head compared with what's coming if I find him, find either of you, messing around with what's mine. He shoved Aaron to the ground, then turned and strode across the yard, whistling through his teeth. He begged me, you know, Deacon said. Your dad, after you did what you did to my Ellie, he came to me. Wasn't trying to tell me you didn't do it, that you couldn't have done it. 
Nothing like that. He wanted me to tell everyone else in the town to back off until the police made up their minds. As if I'd give him the steam off my piss. Falk took a deep breath and made himself turn and start walking away. You knew that, did you? Deacon's words came floating behind him. That he thought you might have done it, your own dad. Of course you knew. Must be a god-awful thing to have your old man think that little of you. Falk stopped. He was almost out of earshot. Keep walking, he told himself. Instead, he looked back. Deacon's mouth curled up at each side. What? Deacon called. You can't tell me he bought that bullshit story you and the Hadler kid cooked up. Your dad may have been a fool and a coward, but he wasn't stupid. You ever managed to make things right with him? Or did he suspect it until the day he died? Fork didn't answer. (laughs) Thought so, Deacon grinned. No, Fork wanted to shout at him. They had never made things right. He took a long look at the old man, then with a physical effort forced himself to turn and walk away. Step by step, weaving through the long-forgotten headstones. At his back he could hear Mal Deacon laughing as he stood with his feet firmly planted on his own daughter's grave. Chapter 29 The shot bellowed across the distant field, the echo rippling through the hot air. Before silence could settle, another crashed out. Fork froze in the driveway of Gretchen's farm, one hand stilled mid-motion as he went to slam his car door. His thoughts fled to the Hadler's raw, scrubbed hallway, the stained carpet. He imagined a blonde woman lying bleeding on the ground, only this time not Karen, but Gretchen. Another blast rang out and Fork was off, running across the fields towards the noise. He tried to follow the sound, but it bounced and echoed off the hard ground, leaving him disoriented. He scanned the horizon frantically, eyes watering against the blinding sun, looking everywhere, seeing nothing. At last he spotted her, her khaki shorts and yellow shirt almost invisible against the bleached fields. He stopped dead, feeling a rush of relief followed by a wave of embarrassment. Gretchen turned her head and stared at him for a moment, then propped the shotgun on her shoulder and raised her hand in a wave. He hoped she hadn't seen him running. She started over the field towards him. Hey, you got here fast, she called out. Pink eared offenders hung around her neck. Hope that's okay. He'd phoned from outside the cemetery. Felt like I needed to see a friendly face. It's fine. It's good to see you. I've got an hour before I need to pick up Lockie from school. Falk looked around, buying a moment while his breathing steadied. Nice place you got here. Thanks. The rabbit seemed to think so too. She nodded over her shoulder. I need to get a few more before I call it a day. Come on, you can be my spotter. He followed her across the field to where she'd left her kit bag. She rummaged in it and pulled out another pair of ear defenders. She reached in again and pulled out a box of ammunition. Winchesters. Not the Remingtons found in the Hadler's bodies, Falk thought automatically. He felt relieved 
then immediately guilty for noticing. Gretchen opened the barrel of the shotgun and loaded around. The Warren's over there, she pointed, squinting in the sun. Point when you see one. Fork put his ear guards on and everything was muffled, like being underwater. He could see the gum trees moving silently in the wind. The sounds in his head became amplified, the blood pumping through, the slight click of his teeth. He stared at the area around the warren. Nothing moved for a long while. Then there was a twitch on the landscape. He was about to gesture to Gretchen when she steadied the gun against her shoulder, one eye squeezed shut. She centred the gun, tracking the rabbit with a smooth arc. There was a muffled boom, and a flock of galahs rose in unison from a nearby tree. Good, I think we got him, she said, pulling off her ear guards. She strode across the field and bent down, khaki shorts stretching tight for a moment. She stood triumphantly, dangling a limp rabbit carcass. Nice shot, he said. You want to go? Fork didn't particularly. He hadn't shot rabbits since he was a teenager, but she was already holding out the gun, so he shrugged. All right. The weapon was warm as he took it from her. You know the drill, Gretchen said. Then she reached up and replaced his ear guards for him. Fork's neck tingled where her fingers brushed it. He squinted down the sights towards the warren. There was blood soaked into the ground. It reminded him of the mark left by Billy Hadler, and the memory made his spine go cold. Suddenly he didn't want to be doing this. Up ahead, there was a movement. Gretchen tapped his shoulder and pointed. He didn't react. She tapped his arm again. What's wrong? He saw rather than heard her say. It's right there. He lowered the shotgun and pulled off his ear guards. Sorry, he said. I guess it's been too long. She stared at him for a moment, then nodded. Fair enough. She patted him on the arm as she took the gun off him. You know I'm going to have to shoot it anyway, don't you? I can't have them on the land. She raised the gun, steadied for a brief moment, then fired. Fork knew before they even walked over that it was a hit. Back at the house, Gretchen gathered up papers that had been neatly laid out across the kitchen table. Make yourself at home. Try to ignore the mess, she said, putting a jug of ice water in a clear space. I've been filling out applications for the school board to get some more funding, charities and things. I was thinking about trying the Crossley Trust again, even though Scott reckons they're a waste of time. See if we get further than the shortlist this year. Problem is, before anyone will give you any cash, they want to know everything. Looks like a lot of paperwork. It's a nightmare, and not my forte, I'm happy to admit. It's not something the board members have had to do ourselves before. She paused. That's why I shouldn't complain. It used to be Karen's job, actually. So, you know. She didn't complete the thought. Fork glanced around Gretchen's kitchen as he helped her stack the papers on the sideboard. He wasn't sure what he'd been expecting, but it was a little more down at heel than he'd imagined. The kitchen was clean, but the units and appliances had clearly seen better days. A framed photo of Gretchen's son Lockie stood in pride of place among the ornaments. He picked it up and ran a thumb over the kid's toothy smile. He thought of Billy, 
ambling through the car park behind Karen on the CCTV footage. Just 80 minutes left in his short life. He put the frame down. Strange question, but did Karen ever mention me? He said, and Gretchen looked up in surprise. You? Don't think so. We didn't really talk, though. Why? Did she even know you? Fawkes shrugged. Wondered for the thousandth time about the phone number in her handwriting. No, I don't think so. I was just wondering if my name had ever come up. Gretchen watched him closely, her bright eyes unblinking. Not that I know of, but like I said, I didn't know Karen that well. She gave a small shrug, a punctuation mark to indicate the end of topic. There was a slightly awkward pause, broken only by the clink of ice as she poured glasses of water. Cheers, she said, raising hers. Not often, but sometimes this is better than wine. Fork watched the tiny muscles in her throat. She took a long gulp. How's the investigation going, anyway? Gretchen said when she resurfaced. Looks like Jamie Sullivan's in the clear. Really? Oh, that's good, isn't it? Good for him. Not sure it puts us a whole lot further forward. Gretchen cocked her head to one side, like a bird. But you'll stay until it's resolved? Fork shrugged. At this rate, I doubt it. I've got to get back to work next week. He paused. I ran into Mal Deacon before. He told her about the encounter in the cemetery. Don't let him get you. That man's off his head. Gretchen reached over the table, her fingertips brushing against his left hand. Twenty years on and he's still trying to blame you for what happened to Ellie? He's never been able to accept that you and Luke were together. Gretchen, listen. If anyone's to blame, it's Deacon himself, she planned on. It's his fault his daughter was unhappy enough to drown herself. He's been looking for years for someone else to point the finger at. You've really never doubted it was suicide? No. She looked surprised. Of course not. Why would I? Just asking. I know Ellie was acting a bit odd towards the end, keeping herself to herself a lot of the time, and there's no question, living with Deacon must have been a nightmare. But I never realised she felt that hopeless, certainly not enough to kill herself. Gretchen's laugh was dry. God, you boys were blind. Ellie Deacon was miserable. Ellie threw her maths book in her bag at the end of class. She'd started automatically copying down the homework from the board, but stopped, her pen frozen. What was the point? She'd considered skipping school altogether today, but in the end had reluctantly decided against it. It would only draw attention to her, and she didn't need any of that. It was better to do what she always did, keep her head down and hope for, well, if not the best, then not the worst either. Out in the crowded corridor, a group of boys jostled around a portable radio listening to the cricket. Australia versus South Africa. A six prompted a cheer. Friday afternoon and all was well. They had that weekend glow already. How long, Ellie wondered, had it been since she'd felt like that? She honestly couldn't remember. If weekdays were bad enough, the weekends were even worse. They stretched out interminably. 
the end seeming like it was always just over the horizon. Not this weekend, though. She cradled the thought in her chest as she pushed her way down the corridor. After this weekend, everything would be different. This weekend had an end firmly in sight. Still clouded in thought, Ellie jumped as someone grabbed her arm. It caught a small bruise and she winced at the pressure. Hey, where's the fire? Luke Hadler looked down at her. What do you mean? Falk stared at Gretchen. You know what I mean, Aaron, she said. You were there. You saw exactly the same things I did. How weird she was in those last few weeks. When she actually spent any time with us, that is, she was hardly around. She was always working at that crappy job or, well, I don't know what. Not hanging around with us anyway, and she'd completely stopped drinking. Do you remember? She said it was to lose weight, but with the benefit of hindsight, that sounds like bullshit. Falk nodded slowly. He did remember that. He'd been surprised because she'd probably been fonder of the booze than the rest of them. Not entirely surprising given her family line. Why do you think she'd stopped? Gretchen gave a sad shrug. I don't know. Maybe she didn't trust herself with alcohol. Wasn't sure what she might do. And I hate to say it, but Luke had a point that night when we had that big argument at the lookout. What are you talking about? I don't mean he was right to trick us, she said hastily. That was a horrible move. But what he said about Ellie not being able to take a joke anymore? He shouldn't have said it, but it was true. She really couldn't. She didn't have to laugh at that stupid stunt, obviously, but by then she wasn't laughing at anything. She was always sober and serious and disappearing off on her own. You remember? Falk sat in silence. He did. And I think... Gretchen stopped. Think what? I think if you're honest with yourself, you've suspected for a long time now that Ellie Deacon was abused. Ellie pulled her arm out of Luke's grip and rubbed the mark. He didn't seem to notice. Where are you racing off to? Want to go into town and get a Coke or something? Luke's voice was overly casual. Ellie had lost count of the number of times he'd tried to engineer one-on-one time with her since the fight at the lookout. So far, she'd always brushed him off. It had occurred to her that he might be trying to apologise, but she couldn't summon the energy or interest to find out. That was Luke through and through, she thought. You had to put yourself out even to get a sorry from the guy. Anyway, even if she wasn't still pissed off with him, today was never going to be his lucky day. I can't, not now. She deliberately didn't apologise. She did wonder briefly if she should try to bury the hatchet for old time's sake. They'd known each other for years. There was history there. Then his face clouded and by the sulky way he looked at her, she knew it wasn't worth the effort. Ellie Deacon had enough men in her life who wanted more from her than they gave back. She didn't need another. She turned away. Better to forget it. Luke Hadler was who he was, and that would never change. Fork looked down as guilt and regret swelled in his chest. Gretchen reached out and touched his arm. I know it's not easy to admit, she said, but the signs were there. 
We were just too young and self-centred to read them. Why didn't she tell us? Borg said. Maybe she was scared, felt a bit embarrassed even. Or maybe she felt no one cared. Gretchen looked at him. She knew you cared, Aaron. That's why she was drawn to you over Luke. Falk shook his head, but Gretchen nodded. It's true. You were so stable. Someone she could rely on. You would have listened if she tried to talk. Okay, yes, Luke was flashier and smoother than you, but that's not always a good thing. Luke was the star, but most people don't like just being the afterthought in their own life. It's not like that with you. You've always cared more about other people than yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't still be here in Kawara. Hey, Ellie. She was halfway down the hall, feeling Luke's eyes on the back of her neck when she heard the voice from an empty classroom. Inside, Aaron Fork was packing labelled pot plants into a large cardboard box. She smiled to herself and went in. How'd the presentation go? More top marks? She said curling an escaping fern tendril around her finger and tucking it back into the box. Aaron shrugged modestly. I don't know. Okay. Plants aren't really my thing. He wouldn't say it, Ellie knew, but he would have aced it. When it came to all things academic, Aaron barely had to lift a finger. She'd also been barely lifting a finger this past year, but with markedly different results. The teachers had stopped bothering her about it a while ago. He closed the box and hoisted it up, awkwardly balancing it in his long arms. This is going to be a pain to get home. Fancy giving me a hand? There's a coke in it for you. His voice was as casual as Luke's had been, but he coloured slightly and avoided her eyes. Things had been a little weird ever since they'd kissed at the rock tree. The fight at the lookout hadn't helped. She felt an urge to explain herself, but couldn't think of the words. Instead... She wanted to take his face in her hands, kiss him again and tell him he'd done everything he could. He was still waiting, and she wavered. She could go with him, it wouldn't take long. But no, she told herself firmly. She had made a decision, she had somewhere else to be. I can't, I'm sorry, she said, meaning it. No worries. His smile was genuine, and she felt a pang of deep regret. Aaron was one of the good guys. He always made her feel safe. You should tell him. The idea popped into her head, unbidden. She shook her head once. No. She couldn't tell him. That was stupid. It was too late. He'd only try to stop her now. But then, when she looked at his open face, she felt her insides wrench with a loneliness that made her wonder if maybe... In fact, that was exactly what she wanted. Poor Ellie, Fork said. Christ, we were supposed to be her friends and we all let her down. Gretchen looked at her hands. I know, I feel guilty about it too. But try not to beat yourself up too much. Other people must have suspected and turned a blind eye. You're a kid did the best you could, and you were always good to her. Not good enough, though. Whatever she felt she was going through was happening right under our noses, and we barely even noticed. The kitchen was comfortable and quiet. 
and Falk felt like he would never have the energy to drag his heavy limbs up and leave. Gretchen gave a small shrug and put her hand on his. Her palm was warm. It's a lesson we've all had to learn the hard way. There was a lot going on back then, and it wasn't all about Luke. Ellie looked up at Aaron, and he smiled. Tell him, the little voice in her head whispered, but she shut it down. Stop. It was decided. She would tell nobody. I've got to go. Ellie started to move away, then paused. The thought of what was to come sent a wave of recklessness crashing over her. Before she really knew what she was doing, she stepped in, leaned over his box of plants and kissed Aaron lightly on the lips. They felt dry and warm. She stepped back, bumping her hip painfully on a desk in her rush. Okay, see you around. Her voice sounded false to her own ears and she didn't wait for his response. As Ellie spun round to the classroom door, she nearly jumped in fright. Leaning up against the doorframe, watching without making a sound, stood Luke Hadler. His face was unreadable. Ellie took a breath and forced her features into a smile. See you, Luke, she said as she edged past him. He didn't smile back. Chapter 30 Falk sat on his bed with a dozen sheets of paper spread out in front of him. Below the pub was quiet. The last patrons had left hours ago. Falk stared at his notes on the case. He scrawled connecting lines back and forth until he ended up with a tangled cobweb and a bunch of dead ends. He took a fresh sheet of paper and tried again. Same result. He picked up his mobile and dialed. I think Ellie Deacon was being abused by her father, he said when Rako answered. What's that? Hang on. The voice on the other end was sleepy. The line went muffled and Falk could hear a muted conversation. Rita, Falk guessed. He looked at his watch. It was later than he thought. A minute passed before Rako's voice came back on. You still there? Sorry, I didn't notice the time. Never mind. What, what was that about Ellie? Just something Gretchen and I were talking about before, about Ellie being unhappy. Well, not just unhappy, miserable. I'm sure Mal Deacon was abusive. Physically? Sexually? I don't know. Maybe both? Right, Rako said. There was silence. Deacon doesn't have an alibi for the afternoon the Hadlers were killed. Rako sighed heavily down the line. Mate, he's in his seventies with mental problems. He may be a bastard, but he's a doddery old one. So? He can still hold a shotgun. So, Rako snapped, I think your view on Deacon is coloured by the fact you hate his guts for what happened to you over 20 years ago. Falk didn't reply. Sorry, Rako said. He yawned. I'm tired. We'll talk tomorrow. He paused. Rita says hello. Hello back and sorry. Night. The line went dead. It felt like only minutes later when the room's landline woke Falk with a sharp plastic trill. He prized open one eye. It was barely seven. He lay with his forearm over his face, 
struggling to make himself respond. He'd looked at his notes until falling into a clammy, disturbed sleep, and now his head was pounding in protest. Unable to bear the noise, he summoned the energy to reach out and pick up the receiver. Jesus, at last, McMurdo said. Did I wake you? Yes. Whatever, my friend, it doesn't matter. Listen, you need to come down right now. I'm not dressed. Trust me, McMurdo said. I'll meet you in the back. I'll give you a hand as best I can. Fork's car was awash with shit. Streaks and smears covered the paintwork, pooling around the wheels and under the windscreen wipers. The mess was already dry in the early morning sun and had settled into the word scratched into Fork's car. Skin you, spelled out in shit rather than silver. Fork ran over. He had to hold his shirt over his nose before he got anywhere near. The smell was almost solid in his mouth. The flies were in a frenzy, and he swatted them away in disgust as they landed on his face and hair. The inside was worse. A funnel or hose had been wedged into the tiny gap of window Fork tended to leave open on the driver's side to let heat escape overnight. The revolting sludge was splattered across the steering wheel and radio and collected in murky pools in the seats and footwell. None of the other cars in the lot had been touched. McMurdo was standing off to the side with his forearm pressed across his mouth and nose. He shook his head. Bloody hell, mate. I'm so sorry. I was bringing the empties out and found it. They must have come in the night. McMurdo paused. At least it's animal, mostly, I think. Still holding his shirt over his nose, Fork walked around the car silently. His poor car. Scratched and now destroyed. He felt a surge of rage course through him. He peered through the street windows, holding his breath, careful not to get too close. Through the grime, he could see there was something else inside the car. He stepped back, not trusting himself to speak. Plastered to the seats and smeared with shit and stench were hundreds of flyers, appealing for information about the death of Ellie Deacon. The mood at the station was bleak. I'll read Dow and his uncle the ride act, mate, Rako had said to Fork before picking up the phone. You know what the car's worth? Could be some compensation. Fork had shrugged distractedly as he sat at a desk looking blankly at the Hadler files. Across the room, Rako now hung up the phone and put his head in his hands for a moment. Looks like Deacon's making a preemptive strike, Rako called over to Fork. He's put in a complaint against you. Really? Fork crossed his arms and looked out of the police station window. And yet my car's the one covered in shit. He says you've been harassing him, tampering with his daughter's grave or something. He's coming in with a lawyer. Right. Fork didn't look around. Do I need to ask? I wasn't, but there were no witnesses, so it'll be his word against mine. And I do have an axe to grind, so... Fork gave a shrug. You're not bothered about it. It's serious, mate. I'll have to process it, but it'll go to someone independent. Career could take a hit. Fork looked over. Of course I'm bothered, but that's Deacon all over, isn't it? 
Falk's voice was so quiet, Rako had to lean forward to hear him. Leaving a trail of destruction and misery. He used to smack his wife around, probably did the same to his daughter. He had a hold over this town and used it to drive me and my dad away. His nephew's done God knows what to make Karen Hadler write down his name days before she died. That pair are dirty, and no one ever calls them on it. What do you suggest? I don't know what to suggest. I'm just saying, Deacon deserves to be strung up by his balls. Getting him on a vandalism charge is too good for him. He's as guilty as sin for something bigger. The Hadlers, his daughter, something. I know it. In the front office, they heard the station door slam. Deacon and his lawyer had arrived. Mate, listen to me now, Rako said. You don't know it. You get caught saying stuff like that outside of this station and that harassment charge is going to stick. So watch your mouth. There's nothing linking Deacon to the Hadler's murders, no matter how much you want there to be. Ask him. Tunnel vision is a dangerous route. Just ask him. The lawyer was young and infused with a deep passion for her client's rights. Rako listened to her patiently as he escorted them both into the interview room. Falk watched them go, then leaned back in his chair, frustrated. Deborah came out from behind the reception desk and handed him a cold bottle of water. Not ideal to be stuck out here with Mal Deacon in there, she said. Yeah, Falk sighed. Procedure. It works for you until it doesn't. You know what you need to do? Make yourself useful while you're waiting. She nodded to the hallway. The storeroom could do with a clear out. Falk looked at her. I don't think... Deborah regarded him over her glasses. Follow me. She unlocked a door and ushered him inside. It was musty, with shelves of paper and office supplies stacked around. She held a finger to her lips, then touched her ear. Through an air vent above the shelves, Falk could hear voices. Muffled, but audible. For the tape, I am Sergeant Rako, present with my colleague, Constable Barnes. Please state your names for the record. Cecilia Targus. The lawyer's voice was bright and crisp through the vent. Malcolm Deacon. In the storeroom, Falk stared at Deborah. This has to be fixed, he whispered, and she gave him the shadow of a wink. I know, but it won't be today. She pulled the door to behind her, and Falk sat down on a box to listen. Deacon's lawyer tried to kick things off. My client, she began, and stopped. Falk could imagine Rako holding up his hand to silence her. You've given us the written copy of the complaint against Federal Agent Falk, thank you. Rako's voice drifted through the vent. As you're aware, he is technically off duty and not a member of this police force, so that will be directed to the appropriate member in his chain of command. My client would like assurances that he will be left in peace and, I'm afraid, I can't give any assurance of that kind. Why not? Because your client is the nearest neighbour to a house where three people were shot dead and currently remains without an alibi, Rako said. He's also a suspect in the vandalism of a car last night, as it happens. We'll come to that later. 
there was a silence. In regards to the deaths of three members of the Hadler family, Mr Deacon has nothing more to add to. The lawyer was cut short by Deacon this time. I had bugger all to do with that shooting and you can put that on your record, he piped up. Cecilia Targus's high voice cut in. Mr Deacon, I advise you... Oh, shut it, love, will you? Deacon's scorn was blistering. You've no idea how it works down this way. These blokes will pin it on me in a heartbeat given half the chance and I don't need you getting me slammed up. Nevertheless, your nephew has asked me to advise... What's wrong? Those tits make you deaf as well as stupid. There was a long silence. Fork, sitting alone, smiled despite himself. Nothing like old-fashioned misogyny to make the ignorant turn down good advice. Well, Deacon couldn't say he wasn't warned. Maybe you could tell us again about that day, Mal. Please? Rako's voice was calm but firm. The sergeant had a good career in front of him, Falk thought. If this case didn't kill his enthusiasm stone dead before it really started. Nothing to tell. I was around the side of the house fixing that fence and I see Luke Hadler's ute come up his driveway. Deacon sounded more alert than Fork had ever heard him, but his words had the sing-song quality of a story memorised rather than remembered. Hadler comes and goes all the time, so I pay no attention to it. Deacon went on. Then I hear a shot from down their farm. I go inside my house. Then a bit later there's another shot. Did you do anything? Like what? It's a bloody farm. Some gets shot every day. How was I to know it was that woman and her kid? Falk could picture Deacon shrugging. Anyway, I told you before, I wasn't paying attention, was I? Because I was on the phone. There was a shocked silence. What? Falk heard his own confusion echoed in Rako's tone. There had been no mention of a phone call in Deacon's statement. Falk knew he'd read it enough times. What? said Deacon, seemingly unaware. You took a phone call during the shootings? Yeah, Deacon said. I told you. But his voice had changed. He sounded less sure. No, you didn't. Rako said. You said you went inside and that's where you heard the second shot. Yeah, I went inside because the phone was ringing, Deacon said, but he hesitated. His voice was slower now and he stumbled a little over the final word. It was the bird from the pharmacy calling to tell me my prescription was ready. You were on the phone to a woman from the pharmacy when you heard the second shot, Rako asked, his disbelief evident. Yeah, Deacon said, sounding not at all certain. I was. I think I was. Because she asked what that bang was, and I said it was nothing, farm stuff. Were you on your mobile? No, landline. I get a crap signal on the mobile up there. There was another silence. Why didn't you tell us this earlier? Rako asked. There was a long silence. When Deacon spoke again, He sounded like a little boy. I don't know why. Fork knew. Dementia. In the storeroom, he leaned his forehead against the cool wall. On the inside, he was shouting with frustration. Through the vent, 
he heard a tiny cough. When the lawyer spoke, she sounded pleased. I think we're finished here. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.